From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. It's Monday. Mm-hmm. We've been drinking. We've, we've been drinking. I've been drinking. Yeah, I think you have had the more <laughs> interesting or at least, uh, you know, exotic drinking sure. experiences. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, regale, regale us, Joanna, with your, your tales what? of drinking what I, cocktails I assume you mixed with snow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no snow yet. No uh, snow yet up in uh, up in the Yukon. But um, lots of daylight. We I think we had about like 20 hours of daylight at this time of year, which must was be kind so of, is it just disorienting? It's so it's so cool, actually, for it oh, to okay. be like 1030 at night and for it to be sunny <laughs> and yeah. still light out. Um, yeah, I, but I but I think it, I understand it takes some some adjusting from the people who live there. Did Mac sleep okay? I feel like that would be my big concern. Yeah, Mac did sleep okay. We okay. we kept him in a pretty dark room, gotcha. um, but but he did he did well. Um, but yeah, so drinking some good stuff uh, while we were in Whitehorse, we went to Yukon Brewing, which I think was the first like craft brewery in the city there. Um, and there have since been you know others that have opened up, but I think they I want to say they opened up in the I don't know early two thousands if I. 1995 is like is is a year that's kind of ringing in my head right now. I'll I'll check that out. Um, so that was really neat. It's a it's a brewery that also more recently opened up a distillery called um, Got Two Brewers, and that's just like it's it's bourbon, it's whiskey, mm-hmm. and um, it's just incredibly popular. I think it's the only distillery there. It's incredibly popular. They sell for. Uh, I think I think they're 105 Canadian. Um, wow. Yeah, so pretty expensive. They do like lim- very limited uh, runs, and they're very popular there. So so that was really fun. Um, when we drove to Skagway, Alaska, um, to go, which was about two hours from Whitehorse, which was really neat because I've never been to Alaska. Um, and I had a spruce ale, spruce tip ale, which I guess is a popular style in Southeast Alaska, which is what I was told. Um, and that was really good. I also had a very delicious Caesar in Whitehorse um, that I don't usually, I don't know, can't say I've had many Caesars in my <laughs> life um, that had an oyster on top, which was very delicious. And then, yeah, as I mentioned on Friday, we did some, uh, we did a little cocktailing while we were there. We made some gimlets some martinis and then i made a batch of whiskey sours using this product like a miraculous foamer in place of egg whites okay. if you've ever used any kind of like egg white substitution this one was called miss better's bitters miraculous foamer and it was really great oh cool yeah i've um i don't when i make whiskey or when i've made whiskey sours in the past i just omit the egg white oh, okay um, but this was a this is a cool product, so I would definitely use it again. Interesting. Those are some of the the highlights. Cool. Yeah. What about you? What have you been drinking? Well, I got the very unexpected opportunity to have wine with Keith Beavers in person. Oh yes, <laughs> Keith was Washington wine. Gave me zero notice that he was going to be <laughs> here, and then I ran into him at an event and was like, "Wait a second! Like, what is going on?" Uh, so, so that funny. was cool. Uh, it was nice to see him, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there was a, a big uh, weekend of Washington wine uh, while you were on your trip, which was nice. Had a couple of nice bottles there. I think uh, a couple of other things that stood out to me. I did have the opportunity on a sort of both 
um, quality, but also somewhat somber note. So um, I don't think I ever actually mentioned it on the podcast, but um, one of the people who first really kind of taught me a lot about wine and introduced me to a lot of things about wine was Dan McCarthy, who was a co-owner of a pair of wine shops here in Seattle. And Dan passed away uh, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And they this past weekend, the shop was doing a little kind of commemoration of Dan. Um, we had some bottles of wine open that were, That's you nice. know, had connections to his experience. And um, so I stopped by. I didn't really have a chance to do a lot of tasting. I had the the fam with me, but did get a bottle of champagne, which, you know, unsurprisingly, Dan loved along with most other things. And so uh, Caitlin and I had a bottle of that, which was really nice and kind of got to think a little about him, which was, you know, mostly sweet, but a little, a little sad as well. Yeah. And I think the only other sort of standout thing for me was um, not a Caesar, but I actually had a, a Bloody Mary in a restaurant for the first time in a while because <laughs> um, we went out for brunch because um, Saul was uh, visiting my my dad. And so it was just uh, Caitlin and Lila and me. And so we were like, well, instead of going to like what we usually do when we go out for breakfast or brunch as a family, which is like, you know, a little more dinery, a little more casual, we're like, let's go somewhere kind of a little nicer. Mm-hmm. And so we did we went to a place called Champagne Diner, which is kind of near us, which despite its name actually doesn't have that much champagne, kind of a bummer, sadly, <laughs> but they do have good Bloody Marys, which uh, I do enjoy. So yeah, it was a drink that I like. And just for a lot of reasons, and largely in part because Caitlin cannot stand them. Not yeah. something I make at home very often because it's just like a Bloody Mary for one is kind of like just not really worth it to me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was that was kind of fun too. So no no clams anywhere near mine, thankfully, but uh, it was tasty nonetheless. <laughs> I used to be really into Bloody Marys and then it, they just became like too, I think, acidic for me. Hmm. But I well, that's because I'm getting just old. Just a little, little, yeah. little hard on the digestion. <laughs> yeah. Anywho. Well, I suppose it's on me to uh, to set up today's topic since <laughs> yes, I am please. the one who suggested it. So, <laughs> the uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which last uh, as last appeared on the podcast, was uh, in much more crisis than as it turned out. It uh, well, it's it's it since now, been, yeah, yeah, been been taken over by First Citizens Bank, and fortunately, their wine division seems to have been kind of kept intact and is still producing a lot of the industry uh, kind of research and reports that a lot of people within the wine industry really rely on. And they just released their direct-to-consumer survey results and report this last week. And there's just was a lot in here that I thought was fascinating. And so I thought we could kind of dive into it. And so before we get into specifics, Joanna, I just wanted to kind of lay out a couple of the topics for for our listeners' sake, too, that I'm most interested in kind of getting your thoughts on. So one of them is looking at how some of these wineries that responded really kind of connect with their um, with both their existing members and with the sort of broader public, uh, in particular through social media, and how that may or may not have changed. Um, the second is this kind of really fascinating data about the sort of near total collapse in most of the regions surveyed um, in the ability for people to just walk into a tasting room and taste wine, um, basically the the conversion in many cases to an exclusively by reservation set up yeah. and what that might mean. And then the last piece is kind of along with that, the just, you know, ever increasing cost of tastings in the winery and how that is such a big, again, that and the, between that and direct to consumer sales, you know, the sort of profit model for a lot of these wineries has really changed dramatically over the last five or 10 years, accelerated, of course, by COVID, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, even starting before that. So 
I don't know, you know, was anything else in here that, that really jumped out to you before we get into some of these specifics? Yeah, I mean, somewhat related to uh, the social media, I found the there were some like email marketing statistics in there that I just thought were fascinating, <laughs> like uh, the open rates and click to click through rates for emails coming from wineries um, are kind of astounding. Like mm-hmm. they're very, very high, which if you do any kind of like email marketing, you know <laughs> yeah. that that's like, yeah, that's pretty impressive um, because I get, yeah, I guess it just speaks to how people are, you know, interacting with wine, like kind of a shift in how people are interacting with wineries these days um, that I thought was interesting. And then others, uh, you know, other highlights, I think, from the report were similar to things we've seen last year um, in the past couple of years as well in terms of, you know, who's consuming wine, where they're losing share um, that, you know, we've discussed in the past. Yeah. So I, I think let's 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 start with maybe the sort of the social media and email side of it. And, yeah. you know, I was struck by the fact that, you know, based on the survey results and, and we'll post a link to the whole thing here on the show notes. So if you want to kind of look at some of this information without trying to hold all these numbers in your head, that is understandable. I'm looking at it as we talk. So it's not like I've got these all memorized. <laughs> but I do think that it's really interesting that if you look at sort of the of the respondents, basically, uh, essentially, 80% or so of social of these wineries surveyed use Instagram, just under 70% use Facebook. And basically, all the other platforms are functionally irrelevant. You know, 15% are on LinkedIn. I I don't really know how you sell wine on LinkedIn, but maybe, um, you know, it's like, and then everything else is basically like 4% on TikTok, the rest are kind of also on like, you know, maybe on Pinterest, YouTube, what was Twitter now? X, I guess. God, I hate saying that. Um, whatever. <laughs> Point is, you know, Instagram and Facebook are really the only social media platforms that matter to seem to matter to wineries, which I don't know. Does that surprise you at all? Uh, no, not really. <laughs> um, because I think of myself and my own like user habits. Um, and I feel like that's kind of where I interact. Well, I don't really use Facebook personally, but I think Instagram is definitely where I interact with brands the most. Um, mm-hmm. So it seems really, it seems smart to me that brand, like wineries should be on that platform. Um, and it also makes sense to me that that's where they're seeing the most interaction with their customers. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a way, it makes sense because if you think about the sort of visual language of Instagram, you know, wine and wineries and things like that fit pretty nicely into yeah. that um, model. I think it's interesting that we've that there's been so little interest in TikTok, seemingly. I wonder if that will change. I mean, I think we've talked about TikTok in the drink space over the last couple of years and how, you know, it is and isn't a useful tool potentially for brands. Um, well, I'm sure there are how... some restrictions for wineries. No, that's true. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. I don't I don't know. Um, a good topic. If you've got more specific information, let us know. Podcast at vinepair.com. If you're familiar with some of the laws that may surround or the, the limits yeah. on what you can post. But obviously, you know, you see people. Maybe individual brands can't do it, I guess. But obviously, I see, you know, when when I've been on there, you see people talking about wine and yeah, drinks yeah. and stuff. But maybe it's harder for an individual brand to kind of get around their potential liability there. So, But it also doesn't su- surprise me because it is, what, it's 4%. The percent of respondents said that um, they use TikTok. So some are on it. But I think yeah. that, you know, whatever, regardless of the restrictions, I feel like you think about the people who are on TikTok and the average age probably um so it wouldn't surprise me that um there would be less interaction there for wineries yeah maybe so i mean interesting to think about whether yeah maybe a good chunk of the user base is not of age to to 
purchase the product. So anything you do there is going to have a sort of, you're going to be, you know, some of the eyeballs you capture are going to be kind of a waste in that stand, yeah. sense. But yeah. on the other hand, if you think about, you know, the the thing we hear from wineries over and over and from the wine industry is how, you know, it really wants to try and connect with younger drinkers. You know, a lot of people in that mid-20s cohort are yeah. on TikTok and, you know, maybe there's a missed opportunity there or an opportunity that could be capitalized on by by people who can do it in a clever kind of captivating fashion. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I think what's impressive about this is that we've talked about so like the necessary evil of social media in the past, right? Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, it's like impressive that wineries are more social media savvy. Um obviously it behooves them to be so, but um it's definitely you know, if we, <laughs> I, whatever, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but like if we think of wine as like this kind of stodgy old thing, like mm-hmm. it's nice to see wineries kind of being on social and like understanding the marketing necessity of being on social too. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, you wonder how much of it is just driven by, you know, if people are going to be taking pictures at the winery, they're going to be posting them on Instagram. Yeah, you know, you want them to tag you, right? You got to have an account to do that. So. Yep. You know, I don't know how many of them are really using it well, posting kind of their own content and, you know, doing it in a way that's that's actually building business. But even if it's just, you know, kind of being on the platform in some mostly passive way, that's probably still not a bad thing. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about tasting rooms, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think to me, that's one of the really one of the things here that, that does feed into a little bit the direct to consumer piece of this. I got to admit, I wasn't shocked but i was whatever is surprised maybe at when you look at the the charts you know the graphs of just the complete precipitous decline of the availability of of walk-in tastings you know <laughs> it's most stark really outside of napa like napa is the place that sort of pioneered the a tasting by appointment and you can see that yes in napa it ticks up with covid yeah but not dramatically and it's everywhere else is like oh shit, like, you know, not only do we obviously have to move to that model to be able to stay open in a lot of cases, or we feel like we have to, but we're also not going back with the exception of Paso Robles, which good for you guys, I guess. <laughs> but everyone else is basically somewhere way below their, their 29, I mean, dramatically below their 2019 numbers. And even, you know, even if some have kind of brought back a little bit more walk-in availability, it's still pretty dramatic to me. Yeah, I, well, I think it makes sense, right? I think the justification for this is because it's more, you know, it's more predictable to have uh, guests come in by appointment. You can staff appropriately for it. Um, I think this also ties in with this idea that, like, there are no, a lot of places are now charging for the tastings by appointment. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I mean, we talked about yes. this before, yeah. Um, and it's gotten more expensive as well. Um, so I, I think it just it seems to make sense to me that uh, wineries would <laughs> would have by appointment or exclusively by appointment. Um, it seems like a better business decision for them. I'm not sure I totally agree that it's a better business decision for all of these w- wineries and regions. I think there are places where or the way I think about it is like for Napa, for a lot of these wineries that are that are charging you 
I mean, shit, $100 a person a tasting or more, or they're offering these sort of like elaborate tasting experiences that are two hours long and have, you know, a a food pairing and all this stuff. Then, yeah, of course, that's not something where someone you want someone just walking in at any random time and trying to do that. Like you in the same way that like you don't walk into a, you know, a Michelin starred restaurant and just be like, hey, do you have a table for four? Like those places tend to be reservation only. And that's fine. But that's also like a small subset of the wine or of the in the restaurant case of the food industry. And, and, you know, I think that model makes a certain kind of sense, but if you walked into the, your neighborhood restaurant and they were like, we're reservation only. Yeah. You might be like, well, wait a second. Like, are, is that really the model you want to be creating for yourself? Like, I think it, it is unfortunate in a lot of these regions I can understand to some extent both the appeal and maybe the necessity in certain cases with staffing of like, you know, we just maybe a winery would say justifiably, hey, it's hard to staff a tasting room for, you know, 10 hours a day, six days a week when, you know, one day you might have 11 people come in and the next day you might have 40 people show up at the same time. Like, it's really hard to be to predict those things and reservations let us, as you said staff appropriately you know control the flow in and out and kind of have a better sense for how the how business is going to go but i do think that it kind of it removes what some of the or at least puts a a limit on what one of the kind of fun things about visiting some of these wine regions can be which is just kind of sticking your head in and being like huh this like you know maybe not literally walking into a a place with no sight unseen but like you know maybe you're kind of you know, Googling around, looking for what's near you, or you you talk to someone or, you know, yeah, you're at a one tasting room and you're like, Hey, what else do you like around here? And to kind of have that then be like, okay, but you have to make a reservation. And it turns out that they don't have a reservation today. So you're gonna have to come back another day. Like, I do think there is a missed opportunity in some of these regions to, or some of these wineries in in particular to like, be a little more flexible and to like, not miss out on someone walking in because you never know when that person who pops in and and is like, oh, you know, we were, you know, a half a mile down the road and they said this place was kind of cool and here we are. And all of a sudden, okay, great. We love it. We're going to buy a case of wine or we're going to join the wine join club, the club or whatever. Like those kinds of things are, you know, you miss out on those. I think when you kind of p- put yourself more in the like Napa fine dining model. Yes, I yeah, I get that. I think from a consumer point of view, it would be nice even just in the, you know, we, we've seen this definitely in like bars taking reservations now, which never really happened in the past, but needing to staff appropriately and accommodate. Um, and I think also with the fact that staffing is harder now and finding <laughs> finding staff members and retaining staff members is really hard, being able to predict a little bit better what kind of crowd you're dealing with I think makes sense but I do think from the consumer side of things it is a little annoying that you wouldn't be able to just walk in like that which is why I think having both seems to make a lot of sense Um, but yeah I can also you know I can also see yeah and it's also an opportunity that they might be missing if people couldn't just walk in I have to say though with the restaurants that uh, say that they take walk-ins and then you try to walk in they don't they can't take you is also kind of annoying yeah well I mean I think there's like this thing where it's like you know I don't ever begrudge a restaurant for being fully booked like good for you if you have that much demand then you have that much demand I think where it's frustrating with some of these cases is like I think a lot of these wineries that are at least pushing people towards a reservation model if it's not the only thing they do is like they're just 
they're just candidly like not that in demand. <laughs> it's kind of like yeah. it's a little insulting to the person who might want to come spend their money there to be told that like, well, you didn't plan far enough in advance. And like, I think there's a place for both. I am, to be fair, a planner when it comes to trips. I like to know where I'm going and what I'm doing. And I like in certain ways that, you know, a lot of these wineries in a lot of these regions are much more appointment based these days. And you can yeah. say, I want to be here at this time and here at this time and here at that time. And I know that I have a spot and that's great. But I also think there are people whose visit to wine country, they want it to feel more organic, Whim- more spontaneous. Yeah, yeah. And and so telling them that they kind of have to put it in that model, you know, I'm not saying that the people are like, well, then fuck it. I'm never going to a winery again. I just think that some people are, you know, you, you, it's good if you can meet both needs, I guess, is maybe yeah. the best way to put it. Well, do you think that this kind of this appointment based model is um, like deterring people? That's a good question to which I think I would say like we need we would need data that better yeah. shows that. I mean, I don't I don't think it's necessarily I think the thing that's deterring people if there's something is deterring people is just the increased cost the of it. Yeah, yeah. And the reservation sometimes acts as a sort of it allows you to charge more. It gives the sort of veneer of a more polished experience, whether or not yes. it is. I mean, I have been to places that take the demand reservations and you get there and it's like the person's like, Oh yeah, okay, I got uh, here, let me you know, they're not like you know, it's one thing when you envision it in the way that it is sometimes executed in some of these wineries where it's like, yeah, they've got your thing set up and your little name card is down on the table and they, oh, we you were know, right this way, yeah. please, you know, <laughs> whatever. I don't necessarily feel that I need to pay for that, but I understand that for some people, that is the experience they want. And to me, where it, the reservation system is particularly off-putting is when, like, it is functionally the same exact experience you'd have walking in the door with no notice, but you're paying now for the privilege of having said you were going to walk in the door in a 15 minute time window. Yeah. And I, that I find unfortunate. And I think it's an unfortunate thing with, you know, to come back to the conversation or maybe to shift the conversation into the cost of, you know, tasting room fees and stuff like that is, you know, there are, I have two big, concerns about this. I mean, one of them is just the sort of further siloing off parts, at least parts of the wine industry for the extremely wealthy, which, you know, is, I think, not not great not for a great. lot of reasons, yeah. reasons that we've mostly covered on the pod. I think the other is that there's a real risk, I think, even if you're not putting yourself out there at that that kind of price point of getting yourself into a position where you are charging more money than you can reasonably deliver value to people whether that value is through the quality of the wine or the quality of the service or both. And I think there's a little bit of a, like keeping up with the Joneses attitude in some of these regions where it's like, well, the person next to me is charging X amount or the wine region next to me is charging X amount or Napa is charging X amount. And my wine is, you know, that good. So why should, so I should charge as much for the tastings. And I think it is a sort of, it strikes me as not understanding I mean, I don't know this. There is interesting data in here about how wineries are earning their money these days. But I do think that in the end, you still have to sell the wine. And if your cost of your tasting is so high, you you at best are selling wine to people who feel trapped into buying it because they want to cover they want to offset the cost of the tasting. But those, I think it's a hard way to build regular customers. Wait, what do you what do you mean by that? offset the cost of the tasting well so like a lot of these places it's like oh you know your tasting is x amount but we'll waive it if you buy a certain amount of wine oh i didn't know right that. so you kind of are seeing people like i mean this is something that i've seen happen many times of like okay if i'm paying 50 bucks per person for a tasting they're like okay well you know that's four tastings let's say but if you buy 
I don't know, $500 worth of wine will waive the tasting fee. Mm. So like, okay, you kind of go like, okay, well, I'll do that. And it's kind of an, it's a model that sort of works, but in a way, I, I think you create a certain amount of resentment through that model. Yeah. Well, I mean, I imagine that's a, that's good for the winery, that model. But maybe it's good short term, but I don't know if it's good long term. That's my point. Like, hmm. yes, it's, it's nice to get more money that first visit, but does that person kind of walk away from that tasting experience being like, mm, okay, we got this case of wine or we got these six bottles of wine and like, fine, but like, I don't really want to buy them again because I feel a little shitty about how this all went down. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I um, I think that obviously the, the prices have gone up in recent years and it seems like they're going to continue to. And I, we, uh, we ran an article on the site about this and about Napa specifically and how, you, I mean, as you mentioned, like, the prices and the costs in Napa are like the highest of all the regions I, I think that mm-hmm. they've explored. And, you know, I'm interested to see that what that will mean for Napa in the future and also what that will mean for these other regions as destinations for people looking to have these experiences. Yeah. And I think the last piece of this that I want to talk about, because it's kind of the, to me, one of the really interesting uh things here that we that we are learning through these kind of surveys is for again the wineries that responded to this so it's obviously to some extent a self-selecting group which probably have had mostly positive dtc experiences to share i was wondering that too for these for these wineries that did respond you know over two-thirds of their sales are coming via direct-to-consumer sales that wholesale to on or off-premise accounts whether I think done directly or to uh, through a distributor, are uh, seem to be a shrinking part of business, and then this actually totally checks out with what I would imagine for a lot of these more premium wineries, where like their whole model is really about you know the, if they can sell the wine directly to the consumer, it's no surprise that that is a more lucrative business for them than trying to get their wine into distribution channels in one way or another, and then have someone else sell the wine to the customer. Yeah, and especially when you can combine that with also capturing you know revenue through these tastings and through other kind of events it, it, it's a really interesting sort of almost closed loop system where you know we've all you know for so long i heard from wineries of all kinds that like they saw being in restaurants you know on lists and stuff like that as being a crucial element for discovery for our customers right like they you know with with a few exceptions of like the really cult wines that already had a big following you know even the the finest you know a lot of the fine wine you know really top end wines wanted to be in restaurants because again they wanted people to see their labels to see their names to potentially drink their wines and then maybe that turns into a visit maybe that turns into a club membership maybe that turns into sales etc but it, but it was it was important to them to have be present. And I'm wondering if that's changing. I mean, I, Hmm. you know, I'm no longer in that world the same way, but I do think that you are seeing, you know, with the move towards more wine club sales, DTC sales, especially again, accelerated via COVID. If wineries are rethinking that and being like, well, do I want to be putting my, some of my wine into as much of my wine into these channels, especially because I'm almost certainly selling it to the distributor for less than I would sell it to a consumer. Like why, where is, where does that make sense for me? What am I, or am I getting enough out of that model to make it make sense? Yeah. I I mean, I think it's also interesting in the context of the social media conversation, like if they're using these other marketing channels to obtain customers Mm -hmm. and then are able to. Ones that are notably mostly free or at least low cost. Right. 
and then are able to kind of convert those followers or, you know, convert that brand awareness into direct to consumer sales. You know, that seems like a smarter, (laughs) maybe a smarter or easier um, kind of strategy. Yeah, I I think that's, I mean, most of these people are in it to win it. And so it makes sense that they might be looking at this and like are pivoting or or continue to lean more into these segments that feel more, both more profitable and perhaps have more growth in them. And it may just be that also, you know, we've talked on the pod a few times about the sort of struggles of wine in restaurants and how there are a lot of factors kind of coalescing there. But it would make sense to me as a winery, perhaps to be like, you know what, maybe we need to find ways to get out not get out of that entirely, but to deprioritize that in our business and focus more of our individual product and our kind of institutional efforts towards channels that feel like they're growing and and more promising, you know, remunerative, not just kind of the thing yeah. that's always been done. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really really fascinating. Um, were there any other uh, you know points that you wanted to highlight? Um. I mean, I think, you know, we've kind of touched on a lot of this, but I do think there's some interesting information here about sort of um, wine clubs and how, you know, kind of important they've become to most wineries and kind of how, you know, there's a lot of data in here about kind of like shipping and stuff like that. I don't think it's necessarily worth talking about. It's more like, hey, if you're a listener and you're interested in this, go check out the report. Take a look at some of this information, you know, in terms of kind of like how these uh, different producers are really uh, kind of looking at the at wine clubs and how to kind of really, you know, deliver value and also kind of what it means, what their what what their customers are looking for out of club memberships. Um, and I think the last piece of this here that's just interesting to me, that's just a little factoid, but but fascinating is that um, kind of if you look at the survey data from me across the the period, the timeline, you see higher like individual purchasing for like tasting rooms in wine regions versus sort of like urban areas. I think about that a lot here in, in the Seattle area, because you have a lot of wineries that are, you know, a lot of the either full production wineries or the tasting rooms are themselves not in, you know, in and amongst the vines. And it makes total sense to me, but it's kind of funny still to think about how like that whole milieu is just way more appealing to people and makes them more willing to kind of open the pocketbook. Not that they, obviously they still buy wine in these urban tasting rooms (laughs) and stuff like that, but it's just, they spend less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah. I didn't yeah. say it was shocking results, but just interesting <laughs> to see what I would have kind of guessed borne out by the data. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you have any thoughts about this uh, this survey or any thought, you know, thoughts about, you know, how wineries approach selling wine these days, um, we'd love to hear them. Podcast at vinepair.com. Otherwise, Zach, I will talk to you Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. 
drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.